Lee Carsley has been named, although I'm not sure. He's not coming now, is he? Well, that's the thing. Or, or Big Sam is is the other one. <laughs> it's always Big Sam, isn't it? OTB AM live weekday mornings from seven thirty on the OTB Sports app. Oh, the shape that will get! You've let all the fans down. Can we not lock this? It's a fact. I am not playing mind games. I am talking about facts. I always said if I was Aladicci, I would probably say I was more of a tactical genius. The answer questions I have uh, religious, politics, uh, health, you know, sexual uh, problems. Look at his face! Just look at his face! None of you, except for those two, have done anything to justify the money that you earn. None of you, disgrace! And I suggest you shut up and show more football. Well, it looked like it was going to be the same old story for Ireland. Another moral victory that ended with no points. Went up late, Shane Duffy to cause some chaos, and the Serbs were so afraid of that that they whacked the ball into their own net. Welcome along to Team 33, Enda here, as we chat through the week of football. With me on the line are two debutants of the show, but like Andrew Omabud Medele, they will slot in no problem at all. Emma Carroll, welcome to the show. How are you? Good, thanks very much. And I didn't realise I was um, just... That was both of us, our debuts. So at least, you know, getting that cap with Arthur is a good thing. Exactly. Like Stephen Kenny, I'm throwing you all in at the deep end at once just to get the caps because you need to get the you need to get, get the caps under your belt so you can actually get up to the speed of the show. Arthur O'D is the other debutant for the show. Arthur, how are you getting on? Nah, top notch, man. Doing well. Yeah, it's really sink or swim now, isn't it? It is. It is. But I've no doubt, I've no doubt you will be uh, swimming in no time. There is only one place to start, really. That is Ireland's 1-1 draw with Serbia on uh, on Tuesday night in the Aviva Stadium. Milinkovic Savage getting the opener for the Serbs, but the other Milinkovic on the side with the OG on the 87th minute to save a point for Stephen Kenny. We'll start with general thoughts on the game. I mean, this was Stephen Kenny's second real game in front of Irish fans in the Aviva Stadium. And like I said, it... For so long in that game, it looked like it was going to be the exact same thing as what has been the theme for Stephen Kenny in this World Cup campaign. A good performance with nothing to show for it. Nothing to show for it and another loss under his belt and the pressure mounting. So, Arthur, I mean, the goal really changes the sort of thought process behind Stephen Kenny and the general, uh, I don't know, public support he's going to get over the next couple of days and couple of weeks, I guess. Yeah, I suppose it does. Like, I find myself, I'm a bit torn. Like, I, I, I was, I'm sure like everyone else, and I was watching the match in RT last night, and it was very difficult, I found, listening to the commentary. And I love, I love George Hamilton, love George Hamilton. But I just, the, the sort of, the celebration stuff, I couldn't really get on board with that entirely. I know the late goal for the thing, but you're almost like, I thought it was, I thought it was pretty poor, to be honest with you. I thought it was as, it was as difficult to watch as not, not as difficult as Azerbaijan for the different circumstances, but in terms of just a spectacle and how Ireland played, like, I don't know. Like, I don't know. I, I tell you what, like, a lot of what's keeping me going now is just, I don't really, the people who are actively looking for Stephen Kenny to leave have turned into such a despicable kind of bunch <laughs> with the way they're kind of getting their message across that it's almost just sticking with it for that more so than anything. Mm. But I just, I don't know. I struggle with the performance. I don't know about yourselves. Yeah, I do. I do want to come back to that sort of culture war that's going on within yeah. the Irish fan support uh, just after we we touched on the game. But Emma, I'm interested to get your thoughts. Do you think it was as as poor as Arthur's making out here? 
Yeah. Uh, <laughs> the only standouts is Azuna, really. Like, he's like Superman. And I suppose a couple of months ago, we all would have thought that Kelleher was nailed on to be the next in line for the, the number one spot. But, um, yeah, I suppose that's the only shining light, really, is that, you know, who's going to be Ireland's number one seems to be what we're talking about instead of, you know, with this great goal scorer, re- relying on Shane Duffy, John Egan, and OMGs to get us goals. <laughs> like, where do you go from there? Like, Yeah, it's such a weird one that while Stephen Kenny talks about trying to change the ethos of Irish football, the goals that we have scored have been Shane Duffy headers and OG for Serbia and really and truly not well-worked goals. I know there was good play in the build-up to some of these goals, but the goals themselves have been traditional Irish football goals, which is making it even more difficult to sort of make the case for what Stephen Kenny is trying to do here. But I, I guess I, I agree with you, Arthur, in the sense of the coverage of the game last night and the, the commentary at the end it was very victorious for yeah. a 1-1 draw against Serbia with an OG on the 87th minute when really Ireland didn't really create all that many good chances. I, I did the player ratings and I've tried to be a lot more uh, statistical in my approach to back it up with the, the evidence towards the, people who don't like XG will not like the player ratings. But out of 18 shots, Serbia had a, a, an, a, an XG of 1.4. So they probably could have scored two goals in the game where Ireland's uh, XG at the end of the game was down at 0.3. So we didn't create many goal-scoring opportunities and we didn't create many chances that were really worth much in the end. But somehow we came out with a 1-1 draw and I just felt it was almost like the... The draw felt like a victory because I think those who support Stephen Kenny get another few weeks of this at least because this does make him more comfortable in his role. Yeah, and like any sort of any last minute equaliser or, or there thereabouts, like is always kind of cause to be excited. Like it's you know that's kind of understandable. I don't blame anyone like that. Like, but um, it is. It was exciting in that regard, and sort of I suppose that how farcical kind of the goal was. Well, just kind of made it a bit funny. Mm-hmm. But um, I think that's spot on. I think in terms of there was kind of countless times over the last few games where they kind of there obviously some good work will build up to it. They'll get a breakaway kind of just inside the opposition half. Seem to be bearing down on goal. Granted, only maybe two, three players max, and then it just kind of generally amounts to nothing. And you kind of—I don't know. And look, I mean, it's—it's it's obviously it's not easy, but I don't know where your or how that gets kind of taught or coached or I—I just—I like it seems like that's a—it seems like something like that will be a long way off mm. before we're all of a sudden kind of fluidly scoring goals. And again, it's a kind of case of then you're kind of back to the same thing. Well, okay, time. But like realistically, and again, I'm I'm not calling for anyone to go because I, I I don't know who you'd replace any Stephen Kenny with regardless. But I don't know, like just how much time, how long does that take to get right? How long before you kind of have a fluid attacking unit that you kind of necessarily will have to introduce different players in now and again? Is Adam either going to play again before we're back in October? Is Aaron Connolly, Troy Parrott will? Like I, it's just it's very. I'm a bit worried about that to be honest with you. Mm. Well, you see, that's an interesting point because Adam Ida now in his combined minutes in this World Cup campaign has played more minutes yeah. in this World Cup campaign than he's playing for Norwich in the last year and a half. So these are the issues that Stephen Kenny's had to balance. And it is interesting that Troy Pirates finally scoring and playing at club level, but it was Adam Ida that still 
got the nod ahead of him in all three of these games, especially in the third game when he had already played pretty much the full game in, in the Azerbaijan and the Portugal game. So it's a difficult one to balance. It, Emma, where do you fall on the um, the issues that we have in terms of getting these players minutes on the pitch, but also balance, balancing that with results? Because I think that's the key issue here. Trying to, trying to get a result at the moment just seems like an impossible task. Um, like two points so far is just not really good enough. Um, in terms of goals, like, yeah, I just I can't see where they're going to come from. You look at Ida and he performed okay. He held the ball up, but like then what? There's nobody around him to pass the ball to. There's nobody in the box. So like we don't have Robbie Keane. We don't have Damien Duff. We don't have these players. Where do you get them? You can't go out and buy them. Like all we can do is like hope and wait and hope that somebody pops up somewhere. Like that's just the next not like Robbie Keane, that might be a bit difficult to get as many goal, goals as he is right now. It's looking a long way off, but um, I don't I don't even know where you look. Like Bamford is quite clear that he never wanted to play for Ireland anyway, but do we need to go down that route again a bit more and try to find somebody on the granny rule and just cap them, you know? <laughs> yeah, well, that, that plays into the wider conversation of, of Ireland and something that, really cropped up I think in this these three games is the way that Ireland are are trying to develop this uh, brand of football and what Stephen Kenny's role is in it because Stephen Kenny admitted after the Azerbaijan game for the first time that his idea of what he was supposed to do is get this team ready for Germany 2024 so that's two years time and then that that came as a surprise to everyone because everyone no, that hasn't been made clear so far. But I, if if you look at the roadmap, I guess that ultimately should have been obvious to everyone that this World Cup came, campaign was not going to be one that we qualify for, the one that we're aiming to have as the ultimate goal with the under twenty one setup, with the the under twenty setup, under seventeen setup. This is going to be a long term strategy, but it plays into the culture war that's going on between what I call Irish football fans and Republic of Ireland fans. I would even specify that even further with Republic of Ireland men's international fans, because I, I would argue that a lot of these fans do not actually support the women's team when they're playing or the under 21s team when they're playing. It's the Republic of Ireland international men's team that they support, not Irish football. And the difference between the two is so stark and so obvious because the, I would, you know, I'm making vast generalizations to support my own theory here. Don't get me wrong, but I would argue that a lot of people didn't know who Gavin Bazunu, Alameda, Troy Parrott, um, even Jimmy McGrath, for example, what the, what he was doing in Scotland. I, I would argue that they didn't, they don't know what they're doing, know what clubs they're playing for, have ever seen them play before this campaign, or that, or what Stephen Kenny has done, or or the issues that is so entrenched within Irish football, within the grassroots level, where they're getting absolutely slaughtered by the GAA when it comes to the community aspect of it and, and funding and uh, jerseys and even just coaches within the Irish structure, how expensive it is to do the coaching badges in Ireland, how much of a deadlock that people are at when it comes to trying to get those coaching badges and the funding, the funding issues that comes with that. So what they see is the results. What they see is Stephen Kenny losing 
games to Luxembourg and drawing games with Azerbaijan. But what they don't see is how the, how the fix is not going to come within 12 games. The fix is going to come within 12 years, potentially, maybe 20 years. And it will t- be a long road to get to that, that point. But ultimately, that road leads to a much better place and a much more secure place for Irish football to thrive. But I don't know if people have the patience for it. And I think it does come down to the football culture within Ireland. The way that people support football within Ireland is largely Premier League based. It's largely watching Liverpool, Manchester United, Man City, Arsenal, Everton, all these teams on the TV. And if something's going wrong with them, they just buy more players. They just wait to the transfer market. Raphael Varane comes into the defence and shores it up. That's not how international football works. That's not how Irish football works. And it's not how things are going to get fixed. And sacking your manager and replacing them with Sam Allardyce, that's not going to work either, Arthur. No, no, definitely won't. Um, I suppose it's kind of interesting then, the, the, the dichotomy between, there's obviously then you'll see a clear split between necessarily what the senior team is doing and what's happening as a broader... Um, in terms of broader developments, like they're obviously not going to be, I suppose, one and the same. Like Stephen Kenny could have won all twelve games, but it would, or you know, whatever he could, he could be top of the group in qualifying now. And um, I suppose it would no more assure the future of Irish football than if we were in the situation we're in now. But I'm wondering, I don't know, like from your perspective, like are would I are we on kind of the right track towards that broader growth and development towards something more sustainable? Or, I mean, is this kind of Stephen Kenny's battle in and of himself? Uh, see, I, I think he's fighting a losing battle, especially for his own career. I would say that he's going to leave Irish football in a better place, but his reputation might not be intact by the end of it. That, right. you know, he, he might be a martyr for Irish football in a way. And I've spoken to, you know, a couple of people about this, and the issues within Irish football are so deep that the Irish international men's manager cannot fix it. He, he, he alone cannot fix it. The, the FAI have to fix it. Communities have to fix it. And it's going, I mean, Luxembourg are aside, and I don't know if anybody listened to this week's second captains and heard Ken Early's rant at Murph uh, yeah. about the, uh, you know, the, the th- sort of arrogance within Irish football that we should beating, be beating teams like Luxembourg and Azerbaijan. And I, you know, I, I agreed largely with his point because, Luxembourg, for example, their manager has been in charge of their international team for 13 years. They, 15 years ago, in the mid-2000s, they restructured their entire uh, football organization. And I know you're talking about a smaller country here, but they face largely the same issues as Ireland in the sense that they've got a brain drain in terms of talent going to bigger leagues in Europe. How do you shore that up? What they did was they put incentives in place for t- players to stay longer in, in Luxembourg, in the Luxembourg League, um, by paying for their college, by helping them get a college education, by helping them, uh, by giving them some extra incentives in terms of money, in terms of transport, in terms of, you know, just helping them flesh out this career within football. And then if they're good enough to go to the better leagues, yes, go and develop in those better leagues. And now Luxembourg have moved up 100 places in the FIFA rankings because they are seeing the, the the fruits of their development and what they did. Even a, a broader example, England, for example, look at what they did. Look at how they are suddenly producing number 10 after number 10 after number 10. That's not an accident. That was a plan that they put in place to do that. And they, they finished out that plan. It took a while, but they're, they're finally now at a stage where they're competing at major tournaments. The same 
with the France team when they ripped it up after uh, Euro 2000 and now they won the World Cup and they were, I know they failed at the Euros this year, but that's what these French players came from a plan. And the same with Germany who won the World Cup. 20-year plans that took. Ireland don't seem to have that plan. They just seem to be trying to hope that Stephen Kenny will fix all of those issues by <laughs> bringing a few young lads into the international setup. I mean, you just look at the grassroots, like, was it the other day saying um, there's no employees in the any of the Irish academy clubs? So if it's not getting from that, if it's not going from that level, then how is it? You need to filter down, but you also need to filter up. So you need to put the resources and the funding into training coaches and getting kids to have fun at a young, like, at a young age because... They're competing with rugby. They're competing with GAA. How do you, how do you, if they don't see the players on their national team doing something, how are they going to stay on board? Like, you know, they mm-hmm. need somebody to inspire them. And that's going to be at coaches, at coaching level when they're just going out having fun with their mates at a young age. And then you can work from there. Yeah. I mean, I, I spoke to the FAI uh, underage development officer a couple of weeks ago on the show about the split between schoolboys and the underage structure within Irish football. So uh, the League of Ireland clubs have their underage teams in the underage league of Ireland. And then the schoolboys are competing with that. And it's almost a mishmash of people who think the schoolboys is the route to go and people who think the underage structure is the way to go. And ultimately you're not getting many places fast because some teams are using the underage structure to develop those players. Some people are using the schoolboys and bows are, are linked up with St. Kevin's and that's that's helping them with players. But are those players developing in, in the right structure, in the right league? And it, there's so much to do and so little money to do it that it's an, an issue. Arthur, I, I did want to get your thoughts on one thing because you're what I would call a, a GAA man. Am, am I right in saying that? Yeah. Or a Sligo I- GAA man. Well, no, yeah, no, I mean, I'm from just outside Sligo Town, so like, it's more kind of football there, but um, okay. I would have wanted more football, more football, but go on. Well, well, as a Sligo man, for example, because Sligo is a, a weird anomaly within Irish football, is that it is a football town more than it is a, a GA town, really. Yeah, in town, yeah, for sure. So, one thing that is interesting to me is the community aspect within the GA and how they have, you know, soaked up the GAA is about community. It is about volunteers. It's about families getting together at the, at the weekend to play with your friends, to play with your your teammates. You play with the same players the whole way up through the, the underage structures and you play with them in seniors and then you volunteer as a coach and you coach the, the next level of of, uh, of players coming through. And the example I always use is Bal Buffet where you walk into the town, there's a stadium on the right-hand side this world-class has a training facility beside it has stands on, on three out of the four sides of it. And on the left-hand side, there's a shed. The right one belongs to the amateur organization within the town. The left one belongs to the team playing in a professional structure. So the, the influence within the GAA and the, I suppose the, the competition with that, how much do you think that plays a role in, in Irish grassroots football, I guess? Yeah, it's it's I suppose it's very interesting when you think about it. It's a similar enough ish situation in Sligo. I mean, the showgrounds now is beautiful for Sligo Rovers players, no. But I suppose Markovic Park, where the footballers and hurlers occasionally get to play, is um, 
has been kind of, I suppose, renovated <laughs> a good while ahead of time. You know, it's been it's been that the same way it's been for quite a long time. Um, despite, you know, basically no matches being played there recently, you know, and not just COVID alone for that, but just in general. Sligo very rarely seem to get a play at home, certainly in the championship. Um, I mean, in terms of, I, I don't know, like it, like it seems to me that it shouldn't really be a detractor. Like you can't, like in an ideal world, you'd imagine that you could pretty happily play both, certainly from a participatory, participatory point of view, you could pretty happily play both until it kind of comes to, I suppose, a crux age where you've kind of made your mind up one way or another. But at that stage, you probably have so many involved that it wouldn't really make a difference. It'd be kind of just negligible who picks what way. But I mean, I, I don't know. I presume like a people involved, I suppose, in, in football, soccer administration as well, that it must be incredibly frustrating to look at how the GA, I suppose, at, like it's currently at, at county level, certainly how successfully generally it is run. The fact that there's, you know, at least, you know, sort of, I suppose, 32 counties, you know, varying degrees to how they're all going. But, like, imagine trying to have 32 League of Ireland teams. Like, you know, like, you, you know, like, there's one team in, well, there's two teams in Connacht, but one League of Ireland, Premier Division team in Connacht. Like, mm. it, like, it's just, in terms of, I don't know, I think I think football will be setting itself up for a fail if it's necessarily trying to have to go after the GA to try and claw back anything like that. You're almost, I think you'd be better off trying to build something <laughs> kind of in sort of symbiotic to it rather than trying to take away because it's it's just like even in a county like Sligo like and you can, obviously you can't say too much but even in a county like Sligo like which is a, you kind of anyone sort of within their own community and it, I'm sure it's the case across the country like where there's there's always problems within GEA like there's always huge what seem like catastrophic issues and county board issues and everything else like this but yet everything still gets everything still kind of goes along quite nicely and everything sort of there's not the same sort of. There's never an issue with players. There's never an issue with. Anyway, that's a different sort of for a different podcast. <laughs> but all in all, I mean, yeah, I mean, I do think football probably you have to kind of go your own way. You're not gonna, I think, you're not gonna break into too much into the GEA stranglehold on different communities. I mean, that's it's Paul Rouse you want to get for that. Yeah. Talk about that. How that's built. Well, we might get Paul Rouse on onto the show at yeah. some stage. We will finish up with the Irish talk. I just want to get your thoughts. So before we finish up, Ireland, Stephen Kenny, is it going to eventually work out, Emma, do you think? I think I agree with what you said earlier. I think he may not have finished with the reputation that he probably would want or deserve, but you'd hope that there's a long-term plan that will leave Irish football in a better place and... That probably has to be the goal over the next four, five, six years, like it, because it's not going to be a quick fix. So just, yeah, I, I wouldn't let him go just yet because I don't know who you can bring in that's going to do any any better and turn results around at such a at a short, such a short um, period of time. Arthur, is, well, can uh, I just turn that back on you? I'm just curious what you think. Like at, at some stage or another, say, unless it ends up like a situation with Luxembourg, that Stephen Kenny, say he leaves, say even he leaves in sort of successful things. So he qualified for Euro 2024, 26 World Cups, a bit of a bust, and he leaves. Where do you see him going next? Or- oh, well, Dundalk might be in the first division next season, so it might not be back to oh, Dundalk. Um, it's a very interesting question. It, I, I mean, international football is generally where you end your career. It's not. Yeah. 
generally where you make a name for yourself unless you're doing like you know a mancini on it and you know completely revitalizing what people think of your ideas as a manager so i mean i I'd say any League of Ireland club will, would bite their hand off to have Stephen Kenny back at their club um, after this. But in terms of where he could, like maybe mid champ, mid to low championship, I'm I'm not really sure how this ends up for Stephen Kenny. How what the end game really is, unless he retires. Because I mean, like the, I think the biggest hole that I can point in the argument of the anti Stephen Kenny brigade is that. You know, I, I don't even fully think that Stephen Kenny will be the man who, you know, eventually is a successful manager for Ireland or what even a successful manager for Ireland looks like. But, I mean, I, I'm not saying Stephen Ireland is the only or Stephen Kenny is the only person capable of doing this with Ireland. But you need someone who is minded like Stephen Kenny who is going to stick with it regardless of what it does to his own career. And he, he said that himself after the Azerbaijan game, that he's going out of his own back to do this, regardless of what the backlash is. So I think you need those sort of figures to make radical change. That's that's the biggest issue. But yeah, in terms of that, after this, I'm not sure what he does. It's It largely depends on how much time he gets. I suppose Michael O'Neill is the prime example of it going right. Mm-hmm. And that, that's sort of what you're saying, kind of when he went to Stoke, whenever like, yeah, it seems like that'll be kind of a. But again, maybe he doesn't have the hunger for that. Yeah, well, if he gets if he gets Ireland to the Euros neck in a couple of years' time, and Ireland do well at the Euros, that's essentially what Michael O'Neill did. I mean, yeah. his opener for Northern Ireland was a disaster as well, but eventually it led to quite a fun time to be a Northern Ireland fan. So. Yeah. Yeah, it's an interesting time for Irish football. It won't be boring, and it it's, it never lacks coverage anyway. So this, uh, this I guess, this is a good, a good time to wrap up the week of Irish football coverage on Team 33. We do have a return to Premier League and a return to uh, WSL this weekend, so we're going to chat about that after the break. So we'll take a short break. Back after this. Team 33. This is OTB Sports Radio. Now, welcome back to Team 33 and a call here with you in the company of Emma Carroll and Arthur O'D. So we finished off with the Ireland chat for the week. There might be more of that on OTB Football Saturday tomorrow if you want to choose, tune in for that at 3 o'clock, although the All-Ireland Final is this weekend as well. So who knows, the GAA and football might be competing for some coverage this weekend as well. The big news for the Premier League is this weekend sees the return of Cristiano Ronaldo to Manchester United. If you haven't heard from the multiple announcements that Manchester United have made on their Twitter account or the massive Ronaldo um, portrait that has been erected outside Old Trafford this morning, Ronaldo is returning and he is wearing the number seven shirt. Um, The Newcastle game this weekend is all going to be about Ronaldo, just like the Ireland-Portugal game was all about Ronaldo. And his return to Manchester United has been all about Ronaldo. Before we get into what he does for the team, I want to get your thoughts on the sort of pettiness between behind an, a grown man needing to wear the number seven jersey for his brand in order to play for the team. There was some weird maneuvering the Manchester United had to do to get Ronaldo into his classic CR7 jersey. <laughs> and it even took Daniel James leaving the club to lead United in order to get Edison Cavani, his 2021 20, number that he wears for Uruguay, so that Ronaldo could take his number seven jersey that he has always worn. So, I mean, it, it's 
not um, as if Ronaldo loves himself too much here, Arthur, is it? No, it's pretty disparaging, isn't it? It's pretty grim <laughs> that that's kind of, again, such a a big part of the branding that everything around it, that it's it just, it kind of, it doesn't, it kind of sort of exemplifies what I think isn't really, ah, like I'm sure from a football point of view, it'll be an interesting move. It'll be interesting to see what it's like when he's at Man United, but it's it certainly, after Varane, after Sancho, it, it certainly doesn't seem to make sense. To really, like I don't, I don't know, like I, like, it, I don't think, like if, and I know we're going <laughs> to just finished off with Ireland, but if you go back like the Portugal game, and I know, it, like, it seems counterintuitive to suggest that obviously he was literally the difference there because he got his two goals and Ireland lost and Portugal won. But I don't think that Portugal team was necessarily best served by sort of playing to what seems like his strengths. Like, obviously, there's a degree to good. You can't really, you're not building a plan around six minutes at the end where he might kick into gear. And to be fair to him, like, he was trying, you know, he's not, it's not like he's, he, he's tried. That, no problem with that. But I just don't understand what Man United gain necessarily certainly long term mm-hmm. by bringing him back and I don't that, not just an age thing I mean you could kind of understand when I know it like when Ibrahimovic came in that made sense it made a degree of sense at the time you kind of bring but and you know you go all the way back Henrik Larsson coming in although it was for a short time you know it made sense I don't get this I don't understand this you have like, what's unless again players move I, I, I cannot for the life of me. The see again the seven go back to your seven shirt thing. It just seems that kind of just seems to sum the whole thing up. Like it's just what's the point? Like what 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 are you hoping to? I'd love to know what what the plan is. What they're hoping to achieve with this? What is is this what they believe will help them in the league? Yeah, <laughs> yeah. The, Henrik Larsson, but just so because you bring it up, and I'm, I'm never going to not jump on <laughs> Henrik Larsson to Manchester United thing. One of the best cameos for a, a, a player of his age coming in Incredible. and just absolutely being amazing. And Alex Ferguson had a great bit in his book about it, saying that despite players in that dressing room who had won multiple Premier League titles, when Henrik Larsson walked into the dressing room, he immediately, you know, people were in awe of this guy because he was just one of the strikers of his generation. So uh, one, of the, one of the best cameos of all time. The Ronaldo one is an interesting one because I... I I find it hilarious that a, a company, and I'll call them a company, a club or a company the size of Manchester United, were essentially tricked by an agent into signing this 36-year-old over, you know, overpaid striker who is well past his prime. It's it's a weird one that you know they needed. They looked to be on a, a natural progression in which they were improving, and the scouting had improved, and the players they were buying had improved, and they were plugging the positions that they needed to be plugged. And then they got tricked into signing a 36 year old striker up front. who's going to be there for two years and going to earn, you know, multi-million dollar contracts for them. So this, this is a pure money thing, Emma, I think. Yeah, clearly Uh, it has to be marketing. And then as you said, tricked by an agent and, tricked by probably Man City again it's like Alexis Sanchez all over again yeah yeah we're bringing him here and then it's like uber panic get Fergie on the phone to him and then like no he's coming here like it's just it just baffles me um but the problem is you you just have to look at Twitter to see how Manchester United fans are about it like they're just like you just you can't switch it off with the excitement and you're like guy uh, really um it's yeah i just i can't really like 
is he even going to play all the time? Like, they've just brought Sancho in. They have Cavani. They have Rashford. Like, Fernandez. Who takes the penalties? You know what I mean? Like, Ronaldo missed one. Fernandez scored. Who, like, there's a lot of questions to be answered uh, on Saturday. And they probably will get a penalty. So, that's kind of my most interesting point. I'm dying to see who takes the penalty. As, as you can tell, Emma is a, a Liverpool fan, so I'm just going to out her for that uh, opinion <laughs> that she is bringing some bias into it. Um, what would be funny, though, is if Ole Gunnar Solskjaer brought back the uh, 4-4-2 at Manchester United and stuck Edinson Cavani and Ronaldo up front. Yeah, yeah it would be, it'd be a, like the return <laughs> of Alex Ferguson. But uh, we were actually joking about this. I, I don't know if I, it was on air or off air last week with Jack O'Till and Oshie McQuarrens. So like, the, the word was that as soon as Man City were in the picture, ex-professionals for United were on the phone to, to Ronnie to get him to, to come to United and cop and stuff on. What, what what Manchester United player do you think still has Ronaldo's real phone number? Ferdinand would. I think Ferdinand probably has enough of a profile. He'll have it. Ferdinand, does does Gary Neville have his current number or does he just say he has his current <laughs> number? He might have the, he might have uh, Mendes. <laughs> yeah. I don't I, know. I, I can't see, you know, maybe like, you know, I, I can't see, you know, the likes of, you know, Fabio or, um, you know, Thomas oh, Cleverley no. still, still being in touch with Ronaldo. Yeah. I'm not sure. If... Maybe it's, maybe it's Michael Carrick, you know, maybe. Yeah. <laughs> it's hard to know. But... They're on the bench going text. Apart from, apart from the football side of things, Arthur, there's another side to this, which we can't avoid. And that's the allegations surrounding Ronaldo to this day. And, you know, it's it's one of the difficulties of modern football, I think. And, and I guess when it kind of happens and the support is so strong online, it's really difficult to gauge what the real public opinion is on this. But for me, it's going to be it's it's going to be one thing from Sky Sports, which is Ronaldo has scored, you know, his fourteenth goal of the season, and fans are immediately forgetful of what happened, but. In the back of your mind, it's really difficult to get past this. Yeah, I'd say to the forefront of the mind, to be honest. Um, and uh, like it, it, so like the same thing. I know you out, you out, out of there for Liverpool fans. So like I'm, I like certainly was more vociferously a Man United fan, but like so I would have been like around seventeen in two thousand and eight. So that Champions League year win and stuff, and then that 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 amazing team that kind of built from two thousand and seven up to kind of, and including maybe 2011, you know, could have won three Champions Leagues in four, four years, you know, that, you know, an amazing team. And you kind of think, I can completely see why, what's now nearly, I suppose, 10 years later, why people, Man United fans specifically, are getting so excited about him coming back. Because I suppose it is, I, I think it's hard to, certainly in what's happened in the decade since, it's hard to kind of underestimate how enjoyable a period that was to be a Man United fan. In terms of how good that team was, like it was, it was an insanely, insanely good team, and I suppose everything since I would have, I mean, I, I, you know, as much as you can be a fan of an individual, I would have liked when he left. I always liked to see Ronaldo do well at Real Madrid initially. Quite happy for him to do well there. It was all great, and then as you say, those I suppose those allegations come out in I think twenty eighteen, um, and I mean it's I you don't you know, want to go over the details of that again, but like. It's an incredibly dispiriting thing. I mean, whatever, I suppose, people will have their opinion and allegations. Everyone's kind of opinion, I suppose, is informed by experience and personal experience and such, and that kind of, they'll take that into it. But, 
yeah, I, I think I think you're spot on in terms of I suppose when this news was filtering through, it really was you know I'd say it might have been one in every ten thousand message or whatever related post on Twitter was it a nod to that like I remember this it's like and it's not you know it's you you're spot on it, it won't even take fourteen goals from it that'll be that'll never it'll never get mentioned mm-hmm. unless it becomes a, a kind of a main news story again it'll never get mentioned not a million years if you think mm-hmm. of that like think of the amount of stuff like. Like even after, oh god, like the, you don't want to get anything. But even like in the same week that Ronaldo came and the situation with Benjamin Mendy and Man City, what he was being charged with, like, and you don't want to get into sort of like it's, it's an issue within football. It's an issue everywhere. Obviously, all these things. There's no kind of it's not specific to football, but like football does a pretty solid job of kind of have always having different things to talk about. Yeah, it's never, it's never oh, oh, agenda. always moving on so quickly. Yeah, it, it, it's, it's all game. Is it becoming more difficult to support high level football at the minute? Like, and I, I do want to touch on the three PM blackout and the sort of idea that Ronaldo would somehow be the the final nail in the coffin for the three PM blackout. But I, I was thinking about this, and you know, you have the Benjamin Mendy stuff, you have the Ronaldo stuff. Robinho, former Man City player, is currently in jail for. Uh, you know, double sexual assault. And then you have Manchester City, PSG, both owned by authoritarian regimes, the Super League stuff last year, billion dollar companies furloughing un- underpaid staff during the pandemic, shirt prices through the roof. I-, I went to see if I could buy my nephew a United jersey the other day. It was 75 euro for a six-year-old jersey. Yeah. Like, it- is-, is the Premier League becoming and high level football i would say i should say so it's the super clubs is it just becoming the you know post you know almost post capitalism encapsulation in which you know nothing in the real world matters as long as the football's good uh, certainly from my point of view that's how i feel i mean i look i'm like anyone else i'll watch and i'll enjoy and there's a degree i suppose of as you're saying there's a degree of it's quite <laughs> It's quite difficult to be completely ethically pure with your involvement in anything in society. Like you know, you know, from where you go to buy your clothes to wherever else. Like you, you but like, yeah. In terms of um, in terms of elite level football, I mean, from my point of view, and it's kind of so. As you said, like I'm from Sligo, and I didn't really pay much interest to Sligo Rovers growing up. Not really. I mean, you'd go to the odd game, and um, I don't know. But, but what depends on what it depends if it's what getting to a certain age or if it's getting to something else or whatever it was. I think partially as well the Super League situation, it just kind of made me kind of take a broader look at it. And I mean from there going initially to kind of watch LOI and you know, I'll buy that package for the second half of the season. Watch more thing, make more of an effort to watch. I suppose we couldn't go to games, make more of an effort to watch Sligar Rovers, getting more into that. Talk to like oh you know so obviously a lot of friends from Sligo who are Sligar Rovers fans. You're like get more into that stream of things. Like you you're trying to and I, I mean, it's, it's 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 a much more rewarding situation. I don't want to sound like you know, as if it's more pure, or it's more thing, but like, at least it's sort of somehow relatable, you know. And it's kind of like you know, you're driving. So like, I remember distinctly driving down from the house to the train station, going back from Sligo to Dublin relatively recently, and just seeing a couple of the players in their tracksuits walking across back from the showgrounds from training. You know, that's, there's something about it that's quite nice. It's just and you know. The football's not as good, obviously. There's no, you know, that's why it is where it is. But it, it's still, I certainly, I, I'd agree wholly with you, entirely with that, in terms of trying to just kind of, yeah, fall a little bit out of love with it, I suppose. Mm. 
yeah, like you don't want to be lecturing people, but I always say because I think people judge the League of Ireland without actually experiencing it. And by experiencing it, I don't mean watching the game that's on RTE. I mean going to a, a match, and it's, it sort of ties into our conversation from earlier that, and it, it ties into what I'm we're, we're going to talk in a sec about the three PM kickoffs. Going to a match is an co- entirely dis- different concept to watching a game on TV. It's an entirely different feeling. You meeting people from different parts of your county, your neighbours, you're supporting. Like I was at the Finn Harps Shamrock Rovers game last week, and the players were just so happy to have fans back there. And it was only there was only about seven hundred of us, but it was an amazing feeling. It was such a different experience to watching a game that. Ultimately, when I turn off the game on Sky Sports, that's me done with it. Whereas with Finn Harps, you have the drive home, you have the chat, you have the talk. It's a completely different experience going to a game than it is watching a game on the TV. And I think you connect with the side a lot better if you end up going to the game. Um, And that does bring us to the conversation around the 3pm blackout because Jason Burt from The Telegraph was arguing, arguing that Ronaldo's game against Newcastle, which isn't on TV this week is seismic enough to abolish the 3pm blackout rule, which has been in place since the 1960s. Emma, I mean, there's two ways of looking at this. It is, it makes total sense for, I suppose, Irish viewers. If the 3pm games were available to watch, like they are in NBC on, in, in the States, but in the UK, I mean, you're essentially saying, putting a two fingers up to the smaller clubs and saying, you know, what, you know, you can, you can, you can try fight this financial uh, insecurity by yourselves. Yeah, like you, I, I think it's one. First of all, like to just abolish it is probably for a player is <laughs> like yeah, it goes back to what we were already saying. It's just nuts and crazy, and like, why would you do it for one player and not do it for for another? Um, like yeah, would. I know every like obviously during COVID we had every single game all staggered and television televised and I just think by the end of it it was like overkill. You you almost felt like because it was on you had to watch it. Yeah, there's too much on. There's too, <laughs> as, as a sports journalist who who watches football, I couldn't keep up with the Premier League. You know, you're you're really where you were kind of it's on, so yeah, have to watch it no matter what the the fixture was. But does it really stop fans going to um, going to lower league fixtures if they are on three if they are shown at three o'clock? I don't know if they if if they would like if you if you support a club and you're going to games, then you're supporting that club. You're not going oh, just because Chelsea City is kicking off at three o'clock. I'm going to actually watch that instead of going to support the club that I've always mm-hmm. supported. As you yeah. said, you get a completely different feeling when you actually go to a game. Dan, you do when you watch it on TV. Yeah, there's a good uh, thread from Dale Johnson from ESPN on this on Twitter that I'll put a link to in. Uh, on, I'll put it on the Team Thirty Three Twitter that he he explains the issues with the three PM blackout and why it's not as simple as uh, saying that fans will stop going to these games because the three PM games on. Essentially, it's down to the residual fans, so the fans that aren't season ticket holders that aren't really um, always attending these games. It's more, actually, there's nothing else to do. We'll, we'll head down because 
season ticket holders pay their season ticket fee in the summer. So the, the clubs already have that, but it's the, the turnstiles cash, the, the cash in, in the vendors, the food, things like that that keeps these clubs going. And then the argument behind the fact that, you know, England and England, Scotland and uh, Montenegro are the only side uh, countries that have this blackout at the minute. Mm-hmm. But the reason for that is because no other country has to deal with the amount, sheer amount of games that England have because, you know, Bundesliga has two leagues. I know it has the other leagues, but professionally it has two leagues. Serie A has three, uh, La Liga has three, but none of those games actually clash with the the Premier Division. So they don't actually have to deal with the issue of, of clashing and um, people not being able to see all, all three of them. So I'd highly recommend going to see and reading that Dale Johnson thread because it breaks it down really well. But before we finish up, there is WSL football returning to uh, screens as well this, this uh, year, which is exciting for anybody who is a fan of the uh, WSL or want to be a fan, want to get more involved in it. And I would recommend getting more, more involved in it because there is some top-level games going on and top-level football played in it. Uh, Emma, there's a lot of issues with this WSL this year, though, because of, you know, broadcasting is one thing, but facilities in another. So you might run us through some of the biggest issues that uh, have been cropping up over the last week or so. Um. Yeah, well, yeah, facilities is probably one of the biggest issues and that's um, it probably goes hand in hand with the broadcast and rights, really. I think it was Karen Kearney talking to Nathan last week, kind of described it as a, almost a vicious circle. If the product is not good enough, then you're not getting the interest. And then, but if you're not getting the money from these rights, how do you make the facilities better? And the circle goes around. So hopefully with this Sky and BBC deal, I think it's worth $8 million a year for three years. So um, they are injecting the money into the clubs, into pitches, into training referees. That, that they said they were kind of their main things where the money was going to go back into. But um, at the weekend, some things were already cropping up along the lines of VAR and goal line technology, um, which isn't in the league at the moment um, because it's not available at every ground, basically. Uh-huh. Um, I suppose over the, the weekend... Um, we've seen a lot of the games were held in the men's stadiums, so it was argued that, well, this technology is in these stadiums, so it's there, but apparently it's going to cost two to three million just to get goal line technology into the grounds where the women would normally play their matches. So it's a bit down the pecking pecking order, as was discussed on Sky on Sunday. Yeah. So were they using the VAR and the goal line technology when the games were in the men's stadium? No, so there's no VAR, no that goal line no technology. Sense. So, but I suppose it's because not every game was in the men's stadium and okay. not every game across the season will be in men's stadiums. So you have to have a fair from the start, I suppose. But like, I suppose the goal line technology is probably the basic one. If you, if you can't get VAR in just yet, then you probably need to be looking at goal line technology because in the opening game last Friday with uh, Man United against Reading, um, Manchester United were one 0 up, and just after second, the second half, Chaplin for Reading just shot a screamer, and it was one of those that's lovely. It bounces off the crossbar and goes down, and you're like, oh, there's nothing like a goal that bounces off the crossbar and goes in, and it's, it was clearly over the line, but the linesperson missed it, and 
it was it was ruled off. So and then United went on to win a two 0 So that was like a changing moment in that because it would have been one all. So completely different outlook then to the rest of the game. Um, similarly on Sunday between Arsenal and Chelsea, this is more where the VAR would would have came in when it was two one. Um, and then Arsenal's Beth Mead went through about two yards offside. Again, it was missed in live action. And then Arsenal went through in 3 2. So, again, it cost Chelsea a point. Arsenal fans won't really care because they'll be like, there's a big win over Chelsea, who was probably favourites for the for the title. And, um, yeah, so like it's, it's already causing questions. Emma Hayes, Chelsea manager, obviously wouldn't have been too happy after it, but she was saying that the money needs to stop being an excuse now, that if the technology exists, then they should be on a level, a level pay, playing ground with the with the men's game. It should be across the board. Um, and she's, she's probably right, to be honest. And I know a few of the other pundits were, were kind of on the side of, listen, we've other stuff to get sorted for us. We need to train the, ref, the referees in the WSL are not professional. It's a professional league, but the referees are not professional. So when you look at it that way, a lot of training has to go into that. And maybe VAR would assist with that, especially if you're not professional. Maybe maybe it goes hand in hand on that side of things. Getting the grounds right is, an, is another thing as well. And especially if, if the games are being broadcast and expected to be broadcasted now week in, week out on Sky and BBC. The amount of games that's been cancelled in the WSL the last few seasons, especially when winter rolls around, because grounds just aren't good enough. They're freezing over. They're getting waterlogged. Like, I think... There was one stage there where Arsenal didn't play a game last season for five or six weeks between, obviously, COVID was an issue as well and then the grounds went right. So, like, that can't happen when you've got a TV deal. So the money has to go in to make those pitches better. Um, and maybe playing more games in men's stadiums is also the answer to that. So, mm. yeah, a lot of things arising already in the first week. Yeah. <laughs> well, as... Uh... Uh, well, with the Premier League having issues with VAR and professional referees, I would argue that getting professional referees is an essential thing to do before you get VAR. It seems like you need to you need to train people up to do these these jobs, really. Um, in terms of the Irish interest in the league, because I guess sort of like uh, I would mention earlier on, not everybody would be familiar with how the Irish women and uh, all the Irish footballers playing. So Birmingham FC are becoming Ireland FC, essentially. <laughs> That's what's happening this year. A couple of signings for them, and uh, suddenly Irish interest uh, is is flying up in Birmingham. Pretty much, whether you're you're a Blue or you're a Villa fan, yeah, just in the last, just on pretty much on deadline day, a cohort of them uh, signed for Birmingham and Aston Villa. But um, yeah, Birmingham have... They've already had Harriet Scott, uh, Irish defender, so she she's been there for a few seasons, and then they brought in Louise Quinn, um, who went straight in as captain. Um, then we've got Mary Horahan as well, a goalkeeper. She signed for Birmingham. I, I, she's had a stint at the club before as well. And then I suppose the big well, the big ones for us that we should be interested in as well is the players that have signed from the WNL, who've been playing excellent for their clubs this season. Uh, for P Mount and, and Shelbourne, uh, Jamie Finn, uh, Eleanor Royal Doyle, and Emily Whelan as well. So there's a few players that were really lighting up the WNL, and Eleanor Royal Doyle was was the top goal scorer. So 
when she gets her chance at Birmingham, it'll be interesting to see how those players step up. Birmingham will have a tough season. They struggled last season. Um, they've lost their manager to Aston Villa. So oh, <laughs> going going across rival really lines um, and Rusha, uh, Little John as well has joined her. So that's Irish interest from the Aston Villa side as well. So that'll be a pretty much an Ireland <laughs> derby when it comes comes to mm. that match. And is is this just down to nepotism or why are they signing for Birmingham? Is that like just Louise Quinn and the them saying that these are players that you can get on the cheap that are really good that you could potentially sign? Or is there a reason that Birmingham and Aston Villa are signing them? Yeah, it's, it's a good question. I don't know. Like maybe it was just, maybe it was exactly that. Like Birmingham have really did have major issues last year. Um, like they could could barely put a squad together. So maybe it was if just it, one of these things of looking around and seeing who we can bring in. And yeah, they, they've basically took some of the best players from the Women's National League here and uh, here at home. So it's a lost their league, but it'd be very interesting and very exciting for them to be able to turn professional as well and try to break into the Irish national team a bit more as well. So yeah, um, I, I can't wait for 20 years down the line when we're having the exact same conversation that we're now having about the League of Ireland and talent going over to England about the WNL when <laughs> are the yeah, grounds good enough, the referee quality, the whole thing, you know, hopefully yeah. it doesn't get as bad as that. Hopefully it, it, there is a, an actual talent development uh, plan in place for the, the women's team because, you know, you know, God knows we need it at some at some level of Irish football. Yeah. That is uh, that's us pretty much done on uh, on Team Three Three for this week. Uh, Emma, absolutely top notch job on your debut. Arthur O'D, same as you. <laughs> Cheers for joining me today. Cheers. Cheers. Team Thirty Three. This is OTB Sports Radio. All right, so that's us done on this week's Team Thirty Three. Thanks to you for listening as ever. If you want to listen back to that show, as always, you can find it in the OTB Podcast Network. The best place to get it is in the OTV Sports app. That's where you get all the -the off-the-ball podcasts. You can subscribe to the Team 33 feed and get notified every time a podcast is live. We'll be back again, same time, same place, next week, talking some more football. Until then, Ewa, Slangofoil. Take away, Johan.